Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, we'd like to think of sports as the great equalizer, as the one area of American life where a person, regardless of race, can enter the arena and find a level playing field, so to speak. Unfortunately, systemic racism is as deeply rooted in sports as it is in most other aspects of American society. You are so right, Ann Carol. Racism in sports has been used in so many different ways, sometimes to separate and others to justify, and in others, it's masked as patriotism. You're right, Courtney. Sports has been used in all of those ways, but sports has also been used as a form of protest. For example, on August 26, 2016, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem. He said, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses Black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and, would, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. It was a very quiet, respectful protest, Aunt Carol, but you would have thought that Colin Kaepernick had made some sort of incendiary or profane statement by the reactions he received. Kaepernick's protest was in direct response to police killings and brutality in African-American communities and America's systemic racism in general. And that would include in professional football. Now, he paid the price for taking a knee against social injustices since his choice led to the end of his career in what many believe was a pernicious ostracism from football, even though he was one of the most successful quarterbacks of his time. He certainly did pay. Now, he is starting to be honored, but hopefully in the future, those courageous steps or those quiet times of kneeling on the field will be looked at as a heroic fight against his systemic racism in sports. Now, Colin Kaepernick was on point for his objection to systemic racism in America, and his courage certainly needs to be recognized. But football isn't the only sport that has had its share of protest and racial inequality. We need look no further than Major League Baseball, basketball, football, and some elite sports for other glaring examples. So how far are we going back in, Carol? The 50s? The 40s? Oh, oh no, 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 my dear niece. We're going to go back further than that. We're going to take a look at baseball in the 1800s. Now, on August 10th, 1883, Cap Anson, the owner, manager, and first baseman of the Chicago White Sox, took his team to Toledo, Ohio. They were going to play an ex exhibition game. Now, he demanded that the Blue Sox not play Moses Fleetwood Walker, the Black African-American catcher. Now, get this. 
Walker wasn't going to play anyway because he was injured. But when Toledo's manager, Charlie Morton, heard about Anson's demand, he took a stand and called his bluff, starting Walker in right field. Well, Anson responded by saying, quote, we'll play this here game, but won't never know more with the, and he used the N-word. Now, Toledo joined the American Association the next year. And on May 1st, 1884, Walker became the first Black African-American major leaguer when he took the field against Louisville. But three years later, Anson finally got his way when baseball owners enacted a rule barring Black players from professional baseball. Oh, wow. And that wouldn't be reversed until Jackie Robinson integrated the MLB in 1947 with the Dodgers. Now, once again, your grasp of history is on point, my dear niece. Jackie Robinson endured racial slurs, hate mail, and even death threats. But he opened the door for others to charge through, even though it had been slammed shut back in 1884. Now, let's talk about the NBA, since it's, it's had its own examples of systemic racism. Here, here just two. While in Lexington, Kentucky, for an exhibition before the 1968-62 season, Bill Russell and other Black members of the Boston Celtics were refused service at a restaurant, so they boycotted the game. The groundbreaking statement at the time when Blacks were expected not to complain publicly about discrimination sent shockwaves through the NBA. Now, Russell subsequently became an outspoken advocate later for integration. More recently, in 1998, Denver Nuggets guard Mahmoud abdul Rauf was having the best season of his career when he decided to stop standing for the national anthem. Now, NBA Commissioner David Stern suspended him for his protest, and they eventually came to an agreement. The player could close his eyes and look downward during the anthem. And from then on, that's just what he did. And while he put his eyes down, he said a Muslim prayer to himself. Now, in reaction to Abdul Rauf's decision, two Denver disc jockeys trespassed on a mosque and played the national anthem with their trumpets. And five years later, arsonists burned down Abdul Rauf's home in Gulfport, Mississippi. I am not even surprised because a year earlier in 1997, current NBA coach Doc Rivers' home was burned down in a racially motivated attack. Now, you'll remember Doc Rivers made a very impassioned speech when the NBA decided to sit out a game um, after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. Well, I'll tell you, Doc Rivers and other NBA players have been very staunch in speaking out and standing up and protesting against uh, systemic racism. And I do recall Coach Rivers' response. Now, one of my favorite stories is how a group of athletes from a variety of professional leagues came to the support of Muhammad Ali. On June 4th, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, you remember him from our other story, Lou Alcindor, who's now known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and other prominent Black athletes met in Cleveland to back Ali, who had refused induction into the Army as a conscientious objector. Well, two weeks later, Ali was convicted of draft evasion. He was sentenced to five years in prison and stripped of his heavyweight title. 
Now, although there were many instances of whites avoiding the draft, running off to Canada or claiming to be conscientious objectors, most people believe officials wanted to make an example of Ali, a strong black African-American who stood up for his rights. Now, here's another story. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when he played college ball, uh, systemic racism confronted him in a, in a really weird way. The NCAA Basketball Rules Committee outlawed the dunk. The committee said it was a, a way to restore competitive balance to the game, but the ban clearly had a target. According to Abdul-Jabbar, he responded by saying, to me, the new no-dunk rule smacks of a little discrimination. He told the Chicago Defender, most of the people who dunk are black athletes. Since then, Kareem has emerged as a force for social change and social justice. I have definitely read a lot of think pieces um, from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And that story about Muhammad Ali is amazing. I've always thought of him as just the greatest of all time. Well, he is and he was. And for many reasons, other than just in the boxing ring, he was a voice for social change and social justice. Even in a sport that African-Americans are not usually associated with, which is one of my favorites, that's hockey, it's had its own sticky history with systemic racism towards its Black players. In 2019, the San Jose Sharks forward Evander Kane revealed that a commenter posted stick to basketball on his Instagram page. Now he responded back, thanks, but I like basketball, but hockey's my profession. Now, in light of the social unrest of 2020, the National uh, Hockey League has started a Hockey is for Everyone campaign to combat the racism many players have uh, experienced, experienced, especially the Black African-American players. Well, Courtney, we were big hockey fans growing up back in uh, our hometown because of the minor hockey league team uh, that we had there. As a kid, I would have loved to have seen a Black African-American hockey player. So I'm glad to see that the NHL is addressing that issue. Now, hockey is one of those sports with limited representation among Black African-Americans, but there are instances of other sports with few Black African-American competitors when systemic racism has reared its ugly head, especially in elite sports like tennis, gymnastics, golf, and one we probably don't even think about a lot, fencing. Oh, wow. But, yeah, yeah, fencing. Now, for example, prior to 1940, African-Americans were prohibited from joining any tournaments authorized by the United States Lawn Tennis Association, and they were snubbed from participating even in friendly ma uh, matches, uh, which made tennis an all-white sport. Now, that color barrier began to fall in 1950 when Althea Gibson became the first Black African-American to participate in the U.S. Nationals. Now, as you know, Courtney, both your uncle and I enjoy playing golf, but the PGA itself, the Professional Golf Association, had a, quote, Caucasian-only policy until 1961, and the holy grail of golf, the U.S. Masters, had a whites-only policy until 1975. Now, it's reported that the co-founder of the Masters, uh, Robert Clifford, once said, quote, as long as I'm here, the golfers will be white and the caddies will be black. Oh, now, wow. <laughs> yeah, what a quote. 
Now, another elite sport, women's gymnastics, has its own sad incidents of racist behaviors. The history of Black African-American women in gymnastics is relatively recent, with the most notable stars in the field being Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles, both of whom were on the gold medal winning 2016 American team. Sadly, both gymnasts have been subjected to racial slurs, isolation, and denigration of their skills. Now, another elite sport that's not widely watched, but one in which Black African Americans are making their mark is fencing. Unfortunately, in 2020, Boris Vaxman, an assistant fencing coach at St. John's University, was fired after a secret recording of him surfaced in which he made very derogatory comments about Black African Americans when he was giving a private session. Oh, wow. Now, fencing is something that I would have loved to be involved in. Even in cheerleading, Aunt Carol, there have been issues with systemic racism. Things like racist Snapchat videos directed towards Black cheerleaders to issues with their hair. Even those who have cheered us on to victory have had to face and deal with not only segregation by their teammates, but also systemic racism. Another incident involved Brown University. The eight members of an all-Black cheerleading squad for Brown refused to stand for the national anthem before a March 8, 1973 game with Providence College, saying the flag no longer represented them. Represented them. The Providence City Council censured the women and denounced the university, but Brown's president, Donald Hornig, defended them, citing their right to free expression. Well, I give all accolades to Donald Hornig for defending them because they did have free expression and cheerleaders should be able to stand for things they believe in. Now, Speaking of standing for things they believe in, back in the day when I was a high school cheerleader, I was a target of systemic racism when the cheerleading coach, egged on by some of the cheer squad, wanted to ban me from cheering because I wore an Afro hairstyle. And that was back in the day of Black power and, you know, standing up for your rights. They weren't successful in banning me, but that incident still rankles me to this day. Now, back to college. Um, college football has its own history of discrimination. Now, here's a story that I read about and had actually knew of, but had forgotten. A group of players who became known as the Syracuse Eight, they actually were nine, Black African-Americans on the Syracuse football team. They decided to sit out the 1970 uh, season in an effort to bring racial equality to a program that had produced pro football famers like John uh, Jim Brown and John Mackey, and even the 1961 Heisman Trophy winner, Ernie Davis. It was a powerhouse. They were demanding better medical care, stronger academic support for all student athletes, fair interest squad competition, and the integration of the coaching staff. Well, they weren't taken very seriously. Their head coach, Ben Schwartzwalder, actually joked about finding a Black assistant coach. He said, I look for one on the way home, and I look for one on the way back to coaching, and I couldn't find any. So obviously, he didn't take it very seriously, and he thought it was funny not to have an integrated coaching staff. Now, those nine players, some of whom could have been playing in the NFL, they turned their focus to academics and their protests actually galvanized the faculty and brought about grudgingly changes to the football program. 
Now, finally, in 2006, Syracuse gave the group the Chancellor's Medal and the Letterman jackets they should have been given 36 years before. Now, that's just one story about college football. I believe you have one to tell, too. I definitely do. And I'm so glad those Syracuse players finally got the honors they were due. Now, the story that I have to tell has a little bit of myth busting. Now, many people believe that the college game that broke down the barrier for race in college football was played in 1970. Paul Bear Bryant's all-white Crimson Tide of Alabama and John Mackey's fully integrated Trojans uh, that featured an all-black backfield served as the catalyst for rapid integration of the Southeast Conference football programs, and it ended with the Crimson Tide losing. Now, before sports fans have my head, yes, the game between Alabama and the USC Trojans did take place and it did push the cause for integration in college sports forward but it just wasn't the first integrated game now the game that caught that started integration actually was played on November 29th, 1969, when the all-Black football team of Florida A&M and HBCU took on the virtually all-white team of the University of Tampa before a racially integrated sellout crowd of 40,000 people, which constituted probably the largest act of mass integration for a public facility since emancipation. Now, Coach Gaither was the coach for Florida A&M. Now, he knew that an integrated game would require the permission of the Board of College Regents. So he had to go about getting his permission in a very covert way, which caused him to step back from the civil rights movement. And it took two years to get this permission And it made it seem like he was making friendships and relationships with segregationists, which was very much frowned upon. Now, Gaither understood the obstacles that a game like this would cause. A victory for Florida A&M would prove that a Black team could outplay a white team and a Black coach could outthink a white coach. And Coach Gaither was warned that a game like this could not be played without a race riot. But Coach Gaither knew the real reason. And what was that? The real real reason. Now, in the South, college football from all white teams supported the ideal of white supremacy and that lie. And he knew if an all black team won, that would topple that salacious theory to the ground. Now, Coach Gaither reluctantly received permission for the game, but in a very underhanded way. The Board of College Regents only gave him verbal permission. That way, if a race riot or anything went wrong, all the blame would fall on the coach and the Black players and not the Board of Regents. Kind of like the old Mission Impossible. If you're caught, we disavow any knowledge of your behavior. You 
got it. And even though he had approval for the game, it would take another two years until he found a coach willing to take the risk and play. Well, this is a cliffhanger, Courtney. I love college football, so this story is exactly the kind I love to hear. Now, the added dimension of Coach Gaither putting his career on the line makes the story even more exciting. So let's take a break. And when we come back, let's see if this game heads to the goal line. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get Watts of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Okay, Courtney, we're back and I'm ready to get to those stands and watch the game. What happened? Well, when we left off, Coach Gaither of Florida A&M had gotten his verbal permission for his integrated college football game. But none of the more likely opponents for Florida A&M to play would step up to to play them. The Miami Hurricanes, not the Florida Gators, even the Florida State Seminoles, who are right there in the same town of Tallahassee, would engage in any type of integrated game with coach uh, Gaither and his all black team from fam you now later later on that year a new coach from up where we're from in Pittsburgh took on the challenge his name was Fran Kirchy and like I said he is from Pittsburgh and he had divided his childhood between Pittsburgh and Miami, but he'd always had a visceral abhorrence to segregation. So he stood side by side with Coach Gaither, ready to take a risk. Now, Coach Kirchy had a few black players on his 1969 team, but his starters were mostly white players. And that was the case when they faced off against FAMU. Now, on to game night. November 29th, 1969, the all-Black team of the Florida A&M Rattlers defeated Tampa 34-28. And Coach Kirchy of the University of Tampa made it a point in telling all the sports writers that interviewed him that he had been out-coached by Gaither. Wow, that was pretty courageous of him. Very courageous. Now, he had his own uh, set of demands for the University of Tampa. He wanted to demand more integration on all sports teams. So he he got his way as well with his team being integrated. Now, some years later, Coach Gaither looked back and said, that game has to be the most important game of my life. And it proves a game of that type could be played with tension and competitiveness. It could be played with whites and blacks in the deep south without any undue racial violence without the fans the players or the community becoming upset with good sportsmanship by both teams and the players he set out to prove it to himself that it could be done in the deepest state of the south florida and he did it 
Wow. Coach Gaither really went out on a limb to play that game. And kudos to Kate, to uh, Coach Kirchie, who joined him on that limb. College football is definitely better as a result. And as I said, I'm a fan. I watch all the time. And um, we have those two coaches to thank for making college football look the way it does today. I'm grateful to both coaches, but we've only scratched the surface of giving examples of systemic racism and racist behaviors in sports, Aunt Carol, but our audience needs to know that something is being done to address this cancer in sports. Yes, Courtney, steps are being taken and folks are trying to address systemic race in sports, but here's the deal. Some of those first steps have actually been taken not in America, but in the European Union, which has experienced rampant incidents of racist behaviors towards soccer players of color. In 1993, Kick It Out was created to work throughout the soccer world uh, through their educational and community sectors to challenge discrimination, to encourage inclusive practices, and to campaign for positive change. According to their website, Kick It Out is at the heart of fighting against discrimination for everyone who plays, watches, or works in football. And football, of course, in the European Union is soccer. Now that program sounds awesome, but is anything else being done overseas to address blatant racism against players of color? Yes, yes, there, there have been some other campaigns. Along with, out, uh, with uh, Kick It Out, the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance outlined four specific steps sports teams can do to address systemic racism. And some of our teams here in America would do well to, to take some of these steps. First of all, they say enact and implement anti-discrimination legislation, ensuring access to sport for all and penalizing racist acts. Secondly, they say build coalitions against racism in sports. Thirdly, they suggest that uh, we should train the police to identify and deal with racist incidents in sports. And finally, raise awareness of racism and racial discrimination in sport. Well, I am glad to hear even more is being done. But back to our side of the pond and our version of football. I know you have some information on the NFL and a few of their failures and successes when it comes to systemic racism. I do. I do. Now, although apparently all sports have a level of systemic racism within their structures, some believe the NFL to be one of America's most visible and egregious offenders. The NFL has tried to address racism and sexism among players and staff by requiring teams to interview Black, African-American, and women for executive positions. They also have instituted anti-harassment training at the league office and in clubs, and um, they require teams to submit plans for unconscious bias training and anti-racism training. Even so, some inclusion and diversity consultants for the league have expressed frustration at the slow pace of change. Some of them, actually, they lay the blame for that slow change at the top with the owners and managers who refuse to change. Well, people hate change, especially people benefiting from racism and the entertainment of Black athletes. But hopefully we'll see more change in the future. I hope so, too, because as the old cliche goes, Courtney, nobody likes change except a baby in a wet diaper. Now, football commissioner Roger Goodell's 
efforts on racism have mostly centered on trainings for players and football staff, hiring practices, and on supporting community groups. Now, the, uh, the uh, league has pledged tens of millions of dollars in 2017 to organizations fighting social injustice. Um, but this, these statistics really tell the, the story. Black players make up about 70% of the NFL rosters, meaning they provide the bulk of the entertainment, yet whites hold the power and won't let go. No Black team ownership and only a sprinkle of Black faces are in upper management in the NFL. We definitely have to see some change. I hope more players and those with the money to be owners take the uh, initiative like Colin Kaepernick did and step up to the NFL to fight that history of systemic racism. Well, you're right. It's a slow start. And tentatively, I'm glad the NFL and other major league sports franchises, colleges and universities and elite sports organizations have started to move in the right direction. But, you know, this can't be a one shot deal that that uh, requires the death of a black African-American man at the hands of white police officer to inspire change. Essentially, the focus of concerns has to be on the structures and processes in an organization's operations, which then will lead to uh, systemic results. Now, since policies and practices reflect and reinforce the prevailing culture and the status quo, that's where we have to work, work on those decision makers. For example, not until 1989 did the NFL hire a black coach for the first time in the league's modern era. And although the NFL now promotes itself as a champion for equality, the latest round of head coaching positions tells a different story. You're right, Aunt Carol. In the latest round of head coaching hire, head coach hiring, there were seven openings, seven chances for the NFL to stand behind slogans like "end racism." But Eric Benemy, the offense, the offensive coordinator who helped the powerhouse Kansas City Chief to consecutive Super Bowls, was shut out again. He's the best known and most talked about head coaching candidate among Black African-American coordinators in the NFL. But he was overlooked while his white peers, some with less experience or accolades, were chosen to lead NFL teams. Yep, another example of when the NFL talked a good game but didn't deliver. Ultimately, Courtney, we need leaders in all sports to start motivating and acting to wipe out systemic racism. Without change at the top, there will be ongoing exclusion and marginalization of groups of people and the acceptance of racist behaviors. Now, my hero and yours, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, sums it up well when he says, whatever happens in sports regarding race plays out on the national stage. Right now, sports may be the best hope for change regarding racial disparity because it has the best chance of informing white Americans of that disparity and motivating them to act. So true. Now, we can't end the show, Ann Carol, without noting Diane Durham, who at age 14 became the first Black African-American gymnast to win a USA Gymnastics National Championship, died on Thursday, February 4th, 
2021. She was 52. A hail and a farewell to Diane Durham. Now that brings this podcast to a close. So if you'd like to contact us on social media or catch up on any missed episodes, visit our website at www.podpage.com backslash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.